Welcome to the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is where accomplishment and harmony coexist. Now, here's your host and Spa Life curator, Diane Halfman. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is a lifestyle that accepts that accomplishment and harmony coexist. The spa and spa life, the SPA, is for seek power always, that power within you to do your deeper work in the world. And before we get started here, speaking of deeper work and the power we have here, before I introduce our guests, I just want to give you a warning because a lot of times people will listen to these in the car, they'll be with their children. But this particular episode is a listener discretion advisory that, as you know, with that we feature a lot about awareness around human trafficking. I've spoke with survivors and people who are part of helping to bring more awareness of this out into the world. And as part of that discussion, you know, there can be some cognitive dissonance where people don't want to believe that some of these things are happening. And my guest has experienced some very horrific things. And in sharing that, it can be really hard to hear. And some of you may even want to turn this off. And one of the things that when I went to Tony Robbins' uh, 60th birthday, last year, earlier last year, and we were talking about helping in this area about, you know, child theft trafficking and the human trafficking in general. And one of the things that he had said was, we know these is this is a hard topic to hear. And just because it's hard, you know, the children that went through these, sometimes even into adulthood, that if they were able to endure this, the least that we can do is listen to the story hold the space, be able to do what we can do to help change this. Because the more we keep these kind of conversations underground, the less likely it is for it to change or for anything to happen around that. So I'd love for you to have an open mind and an open heart and a safe space to listen to this. You may need to pause it. You may need to listen to it in chunks, but I do invite you to listen it to it and to share it. And so I am just in awe of the bravery of my guest who I have here on the show, which is Jean Grey. And she describes herself as an ordinary person who survived ritual and sadistic abuse. She came forward as a witness to this kind of abuse as being real to support others who've been through similar situations. And she is working towards an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social uh, worker, so that she can counsel others who have lived through this trauma. So Jean, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. So I want to, you know, first let's take a deep breath, right? You know, it's one thing to live this and it's another to share with it again. One of the things, you know, I've spoken with like Safe House and and we've come up with a lot of the different statistics. And a lot of people say that 40 to 50% of human trafficking for children is in their family. And you and I have talked about that you believe that that number is actually way higher, that it actually may be even as high as 90%. And you you talk a little bit about that and what your experience was in, in being trafficked by your family. I do believe that the percentage is much higher. I believe it's very well hidden, but it happens everywhere and it happens in America as well. As it happens, I was raised primarily abroad. I was raised in the Middle and Far East and that gave my parents a lot of opportunity. My mother was involved in ritual. My father was a sadistic pedophile. So it was my father who actually hired me out 
for sexual use by other men and by women as well. And how old um, were you? It started when we were two. Okay. And when this happens in a family, you know, we trust and believe what happens in our family is what happens in other families that we don't have anything to compare it to. When did there become a time where you realized either this wasn't happening in other families that you knew, or this was different than other families, or there was some uncomfortableness around it? Where was some of the awareness that happened for you? To be honest, I wasn't fully aware until I was 25 years old. I was so accustomed to being a servant to my mother and being used, having my body used, that it didn't really occur to me that it didn't happen in other houses. Right, right. And so we talk about there's a lot of fear, right, that, that people feel in general. And I can think specifically as a child and one about how you, you felt it. But then what were some of the coping mechanisms that you had then and that you are used now as an adult to move past that fear? As a child, I really relied on my pets. That was my source of support and love. And they helped calm my fears when they were at their worst. I also relied on my grandma. My grandma and I had a very close relationship, even though she lived in America. And she was my support as a child. Did she know what was happening? Did your grandmother know what was happening? She did know. My mother practiced santeria. She was a santera or a priestess of santeria, which is an earth-based religion. And in most cases, they perform only casual sacrifice of animals, that kind of thing. My mother took it to extremes, though, and her family who followed her, followed her into those extremes. Okay. And so then were your grandparents involved with that? Or was that something that your mom evolved into in her own as far as that practice? No, my grandparents were involved. And in fact, the whole generation before my mother was involved. I know that much. It's intergenerational. Okay. My grandmother held the same position that I held, which was as a servant to the Santera. Okay. And so if your grandparents were involved, how is it that your grandmother was a support for you? Because she could relate because she was in a similar position? Or how is it that she was a participant, but also a support? She was always gentle with me. She was always thoughtful. And emotionally, I knew I could go to her if I was afraid, if I was in pain, I could ask her for help and she would provide it. But she did also participate in ceremonies. Right. So I'm sure that that was, again, you know, confusing as a child where you've got someone who you feel safe with and is your go-to, but also was part of the rituals where people got hurt or there were fear. Absolutely. Yes. It it gets very confusing. Right. You know, again, I just want to remind the the listeners that, uh, you know, if any children are nearby, we're, we're going to talk about some of the details that happened. So just listener, be aware of the conversation that we're having. You know, Jean, when we talk about disempowering experiences in our life and the specifics of this, this is probably going to be challenging for some people to hear because 
sometimes just hearing it, there's an automatic shutdown, like that can't possibly be happening, right? Because we have this belief that we take care of children and you wouldn't want to hurt a children. And of course, we hear about certain levels of abuse. But when this abuse comes to ways that people can't even imagine, then it becomes harder to actually believe and then to be able to make changes around that. So I would love for you to just you know share from your heart, what were some of these moments and experiences that you had growing up? Well, it began when I was very young, as I mentioned. When we were born, actually, my mother rejected us. I was born a twin. I was born with a male twin. And the doctor, being Arabic, because we were in Arabia at the time, told my mother that she had given birth to a boy and a bin. Bin is Arabic for girl. My mother, however, took it to mean that she gave birth to two boys. And she never had a use for boys. They couldn't follow in her footsteps. Boys and men were primarily the muscle and the enforcers for her. That's all they were. So when we were born, we were taken and given to the servants. When I was two, however, I developed meningitis. And the servants called my parents and I was taken to the hospital. And my mother went with me in a fit of good parenting. And there she discovered that she had, in fact, had a girl. So I gained potential for her. And that let me, was, let me ask real quick, Jean. So you weren't raised by your parents those first two years. You were raised by the servants? I was raised by the servants. And my father would come in and he would actually, it was primarily to torture us, but he would torture us with diaper pins. That was his contribution to our parenting. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the servant family, did you do of service in the in the household or you know were you at all with your birth parents or you were you just grew up thinking that the servant family was your family i grew up thinking primarily that the servant family was my family my first language was arabic because it's what they spoke and they even got me a little prayer rug and i would do the call to the muezzin and perform my prayers because that's what i was taught that's what they did. So that's what I imitated. My brother and I both imitated that. So then at two, when your mother discovered she had a daughter and that that was a useful position, then what happened? Well, she realized that she had a single son at the same time. And my mother has a thing about single sons where they can be turned into a Jesus-like figure and she could sacrifice them and that is what she did to philip my hand was under hers on the knife that she used to sacrifice philip to gain personal power or ache and you were two at the time i was two at the time but i do remember it and what was your memory of that like you know, did your brother cry? What was your reaction to to that? I mean, obviously you're being coerced and you can't make a decision as a two-year-old to partake in that, but what was your experience of being there through that? Well, I remember my mother, we had long since learned not to cry when the parents were doing their thing because of the father. 
we had learned not to cry for help. So I remember being taken out into the evening and my brother was lying on a table. There were other people there and I was brought up to a step stool so that I could reach the tabletop. And my mother put a knife in my hand and then put her hand over mine. I don't remember sounds. I remember the motion of the knife lifting and coming down and coming across. And then I remember Philip being very, very still and not understanding why he was so still. He was not Philip anymore. He was gone. And this was your older brother and not your twin? This was my twin. This is your twin. So Philip is your twin. Philip is my twin. I, she named us Philip and I was Colin until she discovered that I was female, in which case she named me Janine. Mm-hmm. And there were other siblings, correct? There were two older siblings who died before I arrived. I only know of their death because my grandmother told me about it. Right. So I know for our listeners, not only is this challenging to hear, but I can kind of hear the questions that are going through people's minds in that, why was your mother not held accountable or arrested or found out about? How was that kept in secrecy? I'm not entirely sure how that was done when I was a child. I can tell you that my birth certificate was changed by a doctor friend of theirs. So I'm not actually sure if my birth certificate is accurate or not. But it does say that I'm a single child. Mm. Okay. Got it. So when the legalities get messed with, and there's also some kind of psychological as far as what you're being told versus what you see. And a lot of times, you know, I've heard from other survivors that when you're told something over and over again, you tend to believe it, even if it's different from what you see. And then there's some also some disassociation that protects you from what's happening. So is there some murkiness for you as far as what you actually saw and what you were told and and how you kind of unravel all the things that you've been through? I actually have dissociative identity disorder. So While I've retrieved most of the information that my alters hold, there are blanks for me. Right. And, you know, you've gotten a lot of of support and being able to share this to help unfold some of these things as, as they come to have that emotional support. How is it for you sharing it now? I know this is only the second time that you've publicly shared some of this. How are you doing with it? I'm okay with the information. It is only the second time, but I have been in therapy for a very long time to deal with this. Mm -hmm. However, I am a bit nervous about speaking to people and about being believed, of course. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And one of the reasons why a lot of people don't come forward is that either they've been told they won't believe or there's been counter, you know, things that they've gotten punished when they've told somebody the truth. And so there is a lot of of tactics, harmful tactics, when children do try and tell the truth and say what's going on. So I know that there is, you know, some apprehension that's happening and and you're doing a great job. And I just I appreciate 
you sharing this because it is important for people to realize it because if just one person hears this that has experienced even a fraction of what you have, that may have some awareness for them to get some help. And for those who maybe not had this as part of their experience, they can then do some things to help in, in not only rescuing children, but but helping in the aftercare. There's a bigger part of assimilating and, and surviving through some of these things than anything else. Before we move on, is there any other of the disempowering times that you'd like to share or any other aspects of your story that you'd like to share at this time? Well, there was a boy in the Philippines that my mother, for Valentine's Day, what my mother did when I was about five is she decided to train me to honor and respect the family and keep it secret. And one of the things that she did is she purchased a boy when we lived in the Philippines, who was my age, and she staked him behind an abandoned building. And she left him there for a few days without food or water so that he would weaken. And then on Valentine's Day, she took me to see him. And while she told me what happens to bad girls and what happens to demon children, she thought I was a demon. She actually flayed this boy alive. She removed all the skin from his chest and his arms and from his legs. And when he was weak enough, she laid great wings onto his back so that he looked like an angel. All the while she was telling me that good girls listen to their mothers and good girls protect the family and demon children, this is what happens to them and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much programming that happens, you know, with that, that subconsciously, you know, there's the fear, there's the visual fear, and there's kind of that, that subconscious messaging that, you know, if you don't stay quiet, you don't protect the family, you don't stay in line, that, that this will happen to you, right? There's that association that happens, and it just seems so inconceivable. I mean, myself, you know, I'm a mother, a lot of the, the listeners, you know, have family, and to think that someone is doing this to a child and especially with them being staked out in public, you know, was this on your private land? I mean, did this boy, I know you didn't necessarily remember sounds, but I can't imagine, you know, being able to be quiet during a situation like that. Do you recall anything around if anyone was witness to that or if it was remote, if there were other, you know, areas like, do you remember anything about the circumstances? It was in a compound for foreigners where half of it had been abandoned during the construction. So there were lots of houses that were not fully built. They were missing roofs or missing walls or things like that. And there was nobody there. There was nobody there. She just chained him to a piece of piping. Mm -hmm. And... All I really remember is I remember bringing him my water ration because in the very beginning, she had showed me that he was there. Right. And I didn't want him to be thirsty because I knew that in the heat, he would be thirsty. Mm. That was all I really remember. Did he talk to you at all? He spoke Tagalog. 
And I remember that because I remember him crying out in Tagalog, in the Philippine language. But did you speak that or understand that? I did not. Yeah, I did not. So what were some of the coping skills that you had that helped you kind of get through these type of experiences? And what are some of the things you do today? The coping skills that I used back then were not very healthy, to be honest. I did cut myself to release the pain. I did mostly damage myself in order to stop the pain. Some of it I coped with simply by dissociating and going into another personality who hadn't experienced the abuse. What I do now is I leave room for the fear so that I can actually experience it. Then I use DBT skills such as TIP, which is where you activate your diving reflex. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's explain for the people who may not know about uh, DBT, like what that is, and give an example of that. Okay. That's dialectical behavioral therapy. And what you're doing is you're learning to control your reaction to your emotions. Right. So one of the things that you do is you trigger your diving reflex by submerging your face in very, very cold water. And what that does is it allows you some space where you can actually think about the feelings so that you're not just reacting to them, you're acting upon them instead. Right. Right. And, you know, so part of the whole process around learning these skills is, is shifting unhealthy behaviors into healthy behaviors and building your tolerance around dealing with stressful situations. So it's great to have these positive type things. So it's very, very common for people to, when they're in extreme distress in abusive situations, to do harmful behaviors. You know, the extreme is suicide but cutting and pills and drugs, sometimes they're given, right? Because that way it numbs you out to do their bidding. So there are a lot of unhealthy ways of coping. And so I really appreciate your your journey in one, you know, getting your, your social worker license and being able to help people find these positive type things like the DBT to get through these things in a much a better way. Can you talk a little bit also, you know, other positive things that you do in terms of like, breathing and exercising? What are are some of these other positive coping mechanisms that you use? Well, I exercise daily and that actually takes the edge off a lot of the anxiety because I'm left with a lot of anxiety. It just kind of seems permanent at this point. So that is what I do to control that. And I do breathing exercises daily as well. I actually use a book called Exhale for a number of different breathing exercises that I do to regulate myself. Yeah. There, there's such power in, in the breath. You know, one of the things that, that I was taught is that trauma leaves the body through the breath and that the level of breath that you have and the deeper breathing that you do helps you with that. You know, working undercover for many of years with the police department, there were a lot of situations that I was in, you know, nowhere to the degree. It's not, it's not a comparable thing. It's more of like, how do we move through traumatic situations and anxiety and things that really 
help you. And breath is, is one of those foundational things. Just taking a breath gives you that moment, allows you to respond instead of react to give you that space and, and to get that oxygen, right? To, to help give you some, some clarity. There can be a lot of confusion that, that can happen in terms of with the dissociation. Is there times where it's like, do you have flashbacks of, of things that happen and, and do certain, certain things trigger you in present moment? I mean, how much of this is staying in your past and how much of it is showing up in your life today? At this point, I am no longer actively dissociating very much, mm-hmm. very often, but I did have horrendous flashbacks for years. And a lot of it I had to get through by telling myself that it was a flashback and by using the breathing again mm-hmm. to get myself centered back in today and this time period that we're in make me realize that I'm an adult now and I can make choices for myself, such as calling the police if need be, that kind of thing. Right, right. And so what are some of the other like healthy things that you are doing to move through this abuse that you experience? Well, I was able to get a job recently, uh, about a year ago. So I stay busy with work. I do a lot of self-soothing, that kind of thing. Things like reading, kayaking, whatever soothes me mm-hmm. and brings me back to center. Yeah. So speaking of soothing, I believe that our, you know, the environments like where we live can bring us some comfort and how we experience life, you know, in the kitchen versus the office or our bedroom changes and makes a difference. What's your favorite room in your home and why? My favorite room is actually the room we're currently in. It's my office. And it's nice and brightly lit. It's got my computer in it, which I love spending time on the computer. And I'm also going to school on the computer. So that helps. It's my dog's favorite spot. So she's always here. And uh, it's just really comfortable for me. Nice. That's so good. What are some of the things that that people can do to support survivors? Because I've heard a mixed array of some of the things that people are doing to help are actually counter and and not actually supporting. Um, What is the best type of things to help a survivor? Give people their time. Surviving takes time and it doesn't take a year or two. It takes 10 years. It takes 20 years. It's really Give people space and give them time. Allow them to talk about things safely. If they choose to share with you, you're a special person to them. Don't be horrified. Don't deny their reality. Don't expect them to get over it immediately or anything close to immediately. Right. Those are good insights to help. You know, in looking back, was there a time that if someone had some awareness of what to look for, were you ever out and about somewhere that you maybe gave a look to somebody or were you in school that you felt like you could have maybe told a teacher? I mean, were there people around that you, if they were just paying attention, they could have helped your situation? 
There was. There was actually a teacher who was pretty sure that my father was abusing me. She didn't know about my mother, but she was pretty sure my father was abusing me. And she offered to take me in while my mother went to Holland for surgery for cancer. And I would have told her, but my mother refused to allow me to stay with her. Mm-hmm. So she kind of stymied that. There was also a time when I told what I thought was a police officer. However, it turned out that it wasn't a police officer at all. It was a friend of the family's. Mm-hmm. Right. So for people you know, like your teacher that suspect something like that's happened, what do you recommend for them to do? Stand up and speak out. Even if you only think it might be happening, stand up and speak out. Call community services, call the police, let them know that you have suspicions and just be gentle with the person who's going through it. Right, right. I just want to thank you for sharing just the, your insights and your journey and helping people to open their mind to things that they probably had no idea that was going on, or they maybe think that it's one or two kids. Right. But to the extent that it's happening, maybe talk a little bit about that is the extent that children are experiencing this. I think a lot of children are experiencing this in secret. Santeria is only one form of religion. Every religion has its bad eggs, and every religion has people who are being abused. And I think that. It doesn't matter whether it's Satanism or Santeria or something happening in the Roman Catholic Church. It's got to be dealt with because there are children involved. If there are adults involved with this, there are children involved as well. Whether they be their own children or children who are kidnapped or used specifically for that purpose, created specifically for that purpose, this is still going on. And, you know, this is so important, especially when you talk about this being across the board, no matter, you know, there's a, a difference between religion and whatever your connection or spirituality is, you know, with your God, that personal experience. People could have communities in their religions that they feel supported in, but just because they're supporting theirs, there doesn't mean there aren't factions of those that are having abuse and that they're covering for some of those things. So when you suspect those things, just try and have that separation and have that open-mindedness that there can be one or two bad apples that are in something that then affect a lot of children, that affect a lot of other people. And to know that it's not all or nothing, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray that comes into these areas. And when you may find an area where this is your where your spiritual growth happens, you don't want to believe that there is some negativity and other people being hurt underneath the same roof. And so we have to be open enough to realize that it doesn't take away from your own belief and your own things that, that are important and sacred to you to recognize when things are happening. We're seeing this now a lot, you know, with the police department. I was lucky to work with people that it was their their absolute stance was to help and serve and protect. And it was why they got into that profession. 
Now, does that mean that there are those that, that go off on their own agenda and, and hurt people and do that? Yes. In all professions, there are those type of things. And these are the type of conversations that we need to have to go that a lot can be good. But we also have to, you know, when we're triggered ourselves, we got to listen to our inner knowing. Like if we kind of think something's up, it's worth investigating. It's worth asking a few extra questions because this is those years of children continuing to not be supported and not have that that safety net and that decision. And that's why it's, I mean, Jean, I believe it's now like less than 1% of the children actually ever say anything. Yes, I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that. Because, I mean, they've been threatened, they've grown up with it, so that they don't even know it's unusual. You know, they've been through so much. Some of them, like myself, have even tried to speak to other people, and it just hasn't worked. And that shuts you down. Right, right. It shuts you down. Well, people don't want to believe that, and so they don't want to have the conversation, and so it's easy to push the button and and listen to something else. And so I appreciate people being open to be part of this conversation. And I know that there's going to be a listener that is either having a, a personal experience of this themselves or somebody that they know or having some awareness around that. And, you know, people are going to want to stay in contact with Eugene. How can they do that? Well, they can reach me at connectwithjeangray at gmail.com. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes. So if you have a platform that you want to start getting this message out and you'd like to have Jean as a guest, if you have any questions of her, if you've personally had an experience of this, you know, reach out to her and see how you can help further people really understanding what's happening with this. And in alignment with our, our theme for, for this series and this year of being a force for good in the world, Jean, how are you being a force for good? I am being a force for good by speaking for those who still cannot and by showing that it is possible to survive and to thrive after serious ritual and sadistic abuse. Mm. Thank you so much. I just, you know, from my heart to yours, I just want to thank you for your bravery. I know this is not an easy conversation to have for you to be beyond it yourself and to still be in the fight to help just anyone else who needs that support. I want to thank you for, for that, that gift that you're doing for others. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And for our listeners, thank you for sticking with us, for being part of this conversation. I know it's hard to hear, especially those of you who have children who maybe can't even imagine this or this is a hidden secret for yourself. You know, I've spoken to people who it wasn't until they heard something from someone else that it actually triggered an experience that they had for themselves that they didn't even think of it in terms of abusive or trafficking or anything along those lines. So if that's the case for you, please reach out to someone who you trust that you can share that with, that you can have some of the coping skills and move beyond this because you can move beyond this. There are support. There are ways to do this. Um, Please share this. Please subscribe. Get it out there. We need people to listen to this message because we need it to not be this one-off thing. We need it to be part of conversation so that when it is exposed, we can then see it more, we can save more children, and we can make that difference here in the world. So thank you so much for your part in this as well to help get in the world out. And until we connect again, live your spa life. Bye for now. Bye-bye.
Your host and Spa Life curator, Diane Halfman, wants you to know you can download her free guide to start living your spa life right now. Go to dianehalfman.com and click on the link for the nine secrets to step into your spa life. Now, live your spa life where accomplishment and harmony coexist.